Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 342. Well, like anything in life, I I always told my teams that it's a lot like being a parent. If you become histronic, they're going to become histronic. But if you stay calm, they're going to stay calm. And giving out solutions versus just rat-a-tat-tat or, oh, my gosh, you don't want to perpetuate a problem. You want to solve the issue and challenge. It doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't even matter who created the problem. You just have to fix it. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Hiring a consultant to train your staff and to improve your restaurant can be expensive. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could just get advice from world champion baristas and leading restaurant consultants without spending thousands of dollars? Tipsy believes you should have the chance to learn new skills whenever you need to, which is why they have hundreds of hospitality courses available for only $9 a month. To give you a little something extra, as a restaurant unstoppable listener, you can also get 50% off your first month. All you got to do is Click the tipsy banner in the show notes. Get on it. Are you opening a restaurant and stressing out with where to start? Or perhaps you've already opened your restaurant and you're finding yourself completely overwhelmed with the day-to-day tasks that only you know how to do. If you feel this way, I've got good news. You don't have to do it alone, nor should you regain control of your business and your life with restaurants owner.com and if you go to restaurantowner.com slash unstoppable you will get a 10 day pass for only one dollar get on it with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guest he has a lot of names I just found out, but for the sake of today's conversation, we're going to go with Tommaso Bunker. Tommaso, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm always unstoppable, Eric. How can I not be? <laughs> awesome. That is what we like to hear. And Tommaso Bunker has over 20 years of outstanding experience in operations, finance, human resources, marketing, and corporate officer level management for both stable and turnaround corporations and independent operations. During his tenure as director of operations for Sushi Ron, the restaurant earned a Michelin star. He would go on to share his knowledge, helping restaurant operators turn things in their own businesses around. Uh, And today he is the director of business development of Mr. Espresso located in Oakland, California. Obviously, we're just scraping the surface. The surface. Uh, you've done so much. Uh, I, I can't wait to, to capture your story and your advice, your mentorship. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Well, my mantra is there's always a solution. And, nice. And our business, whether it's resorts, restaurants, hotels, coffee business, in life, there's always challenges and there's always a solution. You just have to look for it. Yeah. And, and what does this do to you uh, mentally? How does this mentally prepare you? How has this affected your business decision making? Well, obviously, by looking for solutions, you glean patience. You, all, you learn to hear what's really being said. You learn to see what's really out there. And you learn communication because it's a big, wide world out there with a lot of different vendors and people. 
Yeah, and it reminds me so much. I just had Chris Schultz on the show from Mod Pizza. Oh, cool. Yeah, and he said in his mantra is failure is not an option. And it's not quite the same, uh, but there's always a solution. Failure is not an option. They kind of go hand in hand. And yeah, uh, just not settling for anything less than what you know is possible. Uh, I love it. Great way to get this thing going. Anything else you want to add on to that? Yeah, you always have to really listen to be what's being said. I mean, you know, failure is not an option. You know, some, there are clients that I've actually told before, you're having an extremely high lease. I don't know if that's going to really pencil in the long term, but have you thought of doing this, this, and this? And that could be simple, something as simple as renegotiating a lease. Yep, absolutely. And uh, let's kind of paint a picture. I kind of gave the listeners a, a aerial view of where you came from, how you got to where you are today, what you've been up to. Uh, but what are you doing right now? What's your role? Uh, tell us a little bit more about Mr. Espresso and, and uh, Mr. Espresso was founded in 1978 by Carlo Di Rucco. Uh, he's from Salerno, which is the Amalfi Coast south of Naples, Italy. And he immigrated to the United States to follow his brother. And in essence, like Steve Jobs, instead of inventing a computer in his garage, he couldn't find real European-style beans. And he wanted to have some real espresso. I met him way back in 1980 as we started putting him into restaurants and I continued to put him into restaurants until I had my consulting company. And then I can only suggest that they could put him into the restaurant, both the machines and the beans itself. Um, I know that it's a whole big thing on third wave beans, but we're a classic approach. And yes, we have the third wave beans because you have to evolve and be nimble. But at the same token, um, we, we do stay to our core element of having the finest espresso in the United States. Plus we're oak wood roasted. Uh, there's a big difference between wood roasting and gas roasting. Gas roasting is a dry heat. Oak wood roasting uses uh, the wood, which releases humidity. And I guess the best analogy there is think of a pizza oven where it kind of extrapolates the flavor with high heat, but the moisture allows it not to burn and you get these defined flavors. And then John, his son, actually goes to Ethiopia, Guatemala, Central America, Mexico, Brazil, uh, to source a lot of the beans that we use for our oh. roast. So, I mean, I'm kind of curious, uh, just a little, and I don't want to go too far down this road, but uh, third, would you say third wave beans, or what was it, third? Third wave is kind of the newer pop-up uh, generation that uses their coffee beans tend to be more fruity, bright, acidic. Um, you know, it's all perspective and taste. I tend to, because I used to be married to an Italian archaeologist and lived in Italy, I tend to like those dark roast. I like an extrapolated real espresso versus those lighter, fruitier, acidic style uh, beans. It's just personal taste. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm interested. I think that we're going to come back to this when we get to like current time. Uh, but there's a lot of crazy things going on in the coffee world today. Uh, and I'm curious, uh, with a company that you're part of being so traditional, uh, so set in tradition in the ways uh, of just, you know, he's been doing this for how long? Uh since 1978, but yeah, but all businesses, I guess the best way to equate that is, is there's a lot of new startups, which I yep. applaud because competition is good and seeing new things is great. But at the same token, if a company just started and as a business person, as a corporate officer, sometimes I'd weigh the fact of, okay, they just started 18 months ago. Are they going to be solid as a company that's been there for 25 years, right? So that's an important aspect of any type of business because what if they go out of business in another yeah. six to 18 months? Whereas the company that's been around for 20 years, you know that they have a service department. You know that there's going to be uh, applicable answers. You know there's going to be a sense of deep root there that's going to find solutions for you. 
Awesome. Yeah, uh, I think this is going to come back up later on. I want to really dive into this. Uh, but for the sake of staying true to uh, the traditional format here at Restaurant Unstoppable, let's go back to uh, when you first knew this was going to be your career. Is there a time that you, you can reflect on a moment in time where you're like, <laughs> well, you know, basically maybe- what happened is my father on my fourth and final senior prom said, you know what, you need to make some money. So he talked to a friend of a friend that got me a job in the restaurant. My pro- it was called La Masonette, which was in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's no longer there, but it was a high-end French restaurant. I started in the dish pit along with the owner's son, one of the commissars, and that was their actual names. How I knew I was going to get into this is I came out to California because I chased a woman and uh, found a restaurant job. And the next thing I know, I started meeting all these great people and I was making some money. It was very fluid. And at the same token, hey, I got to eat and drink for free. Okay. So chase a woman, found a restaurant, or are you still with the woman? <laughs> uh, that, that was a few women back. <laughs> well, uh, at least you found the right restaurant. Uh, so tell us about this restaurant that you found and uh, what you learned from that experience and what was going on there. Well, I did a lot of different things uh, on restaurants. Some of them, I like everybody that's just starting, you try to find your niche on is it the right fit? Because you may think it is, but until you're starting to dance together, you don't know if it is. The very first restaurant was called Shandy Gaff, which was a whole food, healthy restaurant way back in the late 70s. And while I enjoyed it, I didn't think that was the way, I didn't find it sustainable for a long period of time. And that was my own personal perception. So then I decided I wanted to get into a cruise ship, which I did. And then the cruise ship was actually the Mississippi Queen. It was a sternwheeler and a sternwheeler that actually took passengers up and down the Mississippi River, the Ohio River. Uh, and they would have these different places to visit, whether it would be the antebellum homes in the Deep South or if it was just some of the ecological places along the Mississippi or Ohio River. Okay. So uh, the Shandy Gash, uh, the cruise ship, uh, roughly how many years elapsed during this experience during working for these restaurants? Oh, Shandy Gash was probably about nine to ten months. Then I jumped onto the cruise ship for close to two years. Then I came back out to California, um, and I started in the Italian restaurant scene, a place called Don Nunzio's. Um, and that was a cool place because I got to meet Van Morrison, of all people. He was doing a promotional tour, and a guy named Al Scoma was part of the partnership along with Victor and Roland Gotti. And when I say the Gottis, I'm talking about the Gottis from Bergamo, not the Gottis from New York. Okay. <laughs> so was there any st- strategy uh, taking the job at Sandy Gash or at the cruise ship? Or what were you doing uh, in- to be intentional in any way? Or were you just trying to figure it out? Nope. I, well, part of it is figuring it out because that's a life lesson. But yep. it dawned on me pretty quickly. If I liked this business and I was going to continue at it, the more I learned from being in different businesses and in a way using their money, meaning I got to work for them, they paid me, but then I got to observe things. And I did a lot of extra things on my own volition, whether it was to ask if I could follow, ask to sit in on meetings, whatever they allow me to do, that allowed me to kind of figure out, all right, if I get very good at doing restaurant openings, there's going to be a niche market for that. And at the same token, if I'm going to own my own restaurant, I better do openings so that I see how those are done. And then as I started seeing problem properties, I started seeing what was wrong and what were they doing to fix them or were they just doing the ostrich position of sticking their head in the sand? Okay. And um, first of all, I, I just got to put a spotlight on taking that initiative to uh, ask the sit-in on meetings, to 
to take on more responsibilities. I feel like so many people don't progress in their professional lives because they just go along with the current or, you know, they're just there and they don't ever take the initiative to take on more responsibility. And I mean, what can happen when you do take that initiative? Well, Eric, that's a very salient uh, observation you made because it's like anything in life. Do or do not. I actually think that was from a Star Wars movie, but the reality is it does make sense. You, the more you do, the more great things happen for you. If you sit back, uh, life passes you by. That's just another one of those life statements. And I always felt much like what you're doing. You know, the, the other thing I admire about what you're doing is you're actually doing something and making something happen. Thank you. And most importantly, you're passing this on, and that's what I always try to do to the teams that work for me, to pass on knowledge, pass on mentorship, give them some information. And I, I have to applaud you for doing that on your own volition. This is a, this is a great forum. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the acknowledgement, but this time is about you. I'm going to bring it back to you. And uh, two years, okay, so two years at Cruise Ships, uh, a, Italian restaurant, uh, and you said you were, you were observing these openings, closings, and seeing what people are doing. Um, so then after what I did is I jumped into fr- fine dining French, and I got into that strictly by accident. There was a restaurant called Ernie's in San Francisco. It was a continental restaurant. It had uh, Giradons, which are cart service. You had to flambe, you had to carve, you had to bone fish. But they were interesting in the sense that they had been around already and won a lot of awards. Um, they were just, I was the second American hired by two weeks and literally <laughs> had the proverbial foot planted on my back and shoved into a dining room of all this fine dining. But I had this Austrian captain named Kurt. And a captain was the guy that kind of led the team of servers in one room while the mater d led all the captains. And that I spent four years at. But at the same token of the classic continental food, we had a chef called Jackie Robert who was on the forefront of Nouvelle Cuisine. And that would have been in the 80s, right? 80 to 84. So one of the dishes he did was a sea urchin that was poached in a, uh, I'm sorry, he had sweetbreads, riz de veau, that were poached into a sea urchin butter sauce. And then he served it in a sea urchin versus you'd have a lamb that you would carve a side of rack of lamb table side or you do Crepe Suzette, table side. So the, you got the best of both worlds. And from there, I went to a restaurant called Masa's for four years. Um, everybody may have heard of Masataka Kubayashi. He was famous in New York because he was started out there. Then he came to California at Averge de Soleil. And then he went to work for the Kempton Group at Masa's. And they named the restaurant after him. Uh, tragically, he was murdered. And then after that, they continued the restaurant along for years and years and years. And that was really a restaurant that had a lot of beautiful presentations food-wise. Um, again, at, and that's where I kind of met a guy named John Coonan, who was uh, my mater d, who I learned a lot from, and a guy named Mark Bowery, who was a sommelier. And these two were probably some of the two of the greatest guys I've ever worked with and learned things from. Okay. So uh, we got uh- approximately nine months to almost a year, uh, then two years at the cruise ship and uh, four years at fine dines. We're, we're approaching almost seven years now. How long were you at Masa's? Four years at Masa's. So the Ernie's and Masa's were eight years plus the other years. Then I went into Ilford Isle and that was in 1990. It means the baker. And that was started by a gentleman named Larry Mandel. Um, he wanted to bring true Italian food to California, not the spaghetti meatball thing, but he really wanted to have that, uh, true Italian experience in Pagliodosti was the restaurant after that. Um, 
trying to remember if the, in, Man. in the line of how many restaurants I worked. Then I went and worked for Gordon Beers. You may have heard of them. They do brewery restaurants. Uh, and that's where I had a guy named Dan Gordon and Dean Beers. They were opening a restaurant in Honolulu. And because I had gotten a reputation for being able to turn around restaurants or to jump into situations, um, gentleman they hired as the general manager for whatever reason panicked and left and I kind of parachuted into Honolulu and opened the very first brewery restaurant in all of Hawaii back in 1992 if I remember correctly wow okay so I'm starting to get the big picture um at what point on this journey of working at these different restaurants four years here two years there did you really start to get clarity on what your specialty was was there any point where you knew that like this wasn't just you jumping around for jobs, but this was going to be your career. Can you bring us to that time where you really committed yourself personally? Sure. Well, jumping around is dependent upon spend six to nine months. That's a jump around. Once you've gone to four or five, four or five years at certain types of restaurants, what you've done is actually gleaned a lot of information and you've broadened your spectrum and your expertise so that you can see that there's a common denominator. Roast chicken in any language is still a roast chicken. Mm-hmm. Onion soup is still onion soup, and oysters in any language are still oysters. But as I def- the most salient moment was, did I really want to be still a captain and this person that kind of ran a dining room versus being getting the management part, the financial part, the business side down? Because I don't care how charming you are, if you can't make some money at it, you're not going to be long for the world, right? So mm-hmm. that's... That was the salient moment of, am I going to just stay stuck in this rut for the rest of my life, or am I going to keep on growing into this position within the food and wine industry? And which, which uh, restaurant were you at when you had this conversation with yourself? Uh, I, just, I was just leaving Moss's to join Ilford Isle as a manager. They were opening up a 10,000-square-foot restaurant that they spent a boatload of money on in 1990, I believe it was, around $3 million. So think of, actually, it was 89, and uh, that's all. In these dollars, that would be like six, but it had Carrera Marble. It was definitely a tricked-out, beautiful, fantastic-looking restaurant that was open breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and then I had to learn the management skills and improve upon them. And in a way, I had those management skills of dealing with people because, as you can tell, I'm painfully shy and don't like to chat. So as you learn things and work with people. I absorbed a lot of information to see what was right. And then when you made a mistake, you got back up and skinned your knee and started fresh again. Well, for what it's worth, I haven't picked up on your shyness. I think you're doing a great job. This is uh, that, I, that was tongue in cheek on my side for sure. <laughs> it's a great conversation to this point. And I, it seems like um, you said it was 1989. Like this is the point where you started really living intentionally. This is the point where I've got to figure out how to do this the best of my ability because I can't just survive off my charm alone. So going to this uh, restaurant and what was the name of the restaurant? One more time, please. Il Fornio, I L space F O R N A I O. They're still around. They had, okay. I think they offered an IPO and then they got bought back. There's something like 25 or 30 around the nation now. Why this restaurant? Why did you choose this restaurant to go to to take it to the next level professional? What were you trying well, to do? Well, Larry Mandel, who was the founder, uh, he had a reputation in the Bay Area. It was a management job, and I needed to get into the management part. Um, I got promoted to the general manager within nine to ten months, not because the general manager above me did anything wrong, but they decided to open another restaurant, and his name is Umberto Gibin, and he's a, he owns Probaco and Barbaco here in San Francisco. Um, and you know, we were a pretty formidable team together and worked well. Okay. And, um, so 
first, I love that they promote from within. Uh, I think that's a, probably a conversation for another day. But uh, you're basically uh, taking the, the the role of this person who got promoted from within. And uh, what was that experience like uh, going into a restaurant with the intention to really take control of your life? Did you did you enter into that restaurant different from any of the others you entered in? And if so, how? I wouldn't say I entered into it different, but I definitely had to have a little more focus because it was a four and a half million dollar property that was generating four and a half million. We do 300, 400 covers every shift. Wow. That's a lot of covers and you had a lot of employees and you had to direct them all. And again, you had to have fiscal responsibility to the investors. Mm -hmm. With that focus, you honed your skills you know, and I had a wide swath of different personalities from the Europeans and Italians to a lot of the Latinos to a lot of the local Bay Area kids. And don't forget back in those days, as I sound like I'm 3000 years older than dirt, is that just the forefront of a lot of healthy eating as people were starting to really get into the roots of uh, eating, no pun intended, you know, that fresh food, that local food. Mm-hmm. People think that that's just been around, but really it was about 1980. 58490 was when uh, Alice Waters and Jeremiah Tower and everybody that's on the west coast not the eastern seaboard of course okay um so what was that like going into this uh this really high stakes situation uh lots of money you know at you know on the table uh lots of responsibility on your shoulders you're i'm assuming still a young guy um approximately how old are you not you know uh i, I told you i'm 3 days older than dirt <laughs> but how did you so the responsibility into- part is again it was i learned the financial part in how to make sure that we were paying attention to the labor dollars also 1989 was the famous earthquake loma prieta in uh, san francisco so matt okay. and i was doing an interview with a guy who was from new york city ironically and he had just moved out there when all this shaking starts going on and the lights start flickering off and you start hearing people making noises. And I remember grabbing him. And in those days, you were told to go into a, a doorway, which I did, but then the lights went out. And long and short is we had an earthquake and made it through. I never saw the guy. I think he <laughs> back next flight flew back, back home the very next day. <laughs> I don't blame him. Uh, but so – how did you evolve as a leader during this time? Take us through the, your professional evolution, the things you were learning in, in reflection, um, how you changed in that probably more serious role. Well, that, that's also a salient observation because reflection is really what you do in our, your own lives, right? If you take a moment to think about what did I do right, what did I do wrong, and there's always challenges. I learned to stay calm, and that's something that probably has served me the best than other people. I never used to dress down people in front of a lot of people. I would always see what's the actual problem to find the solution. I remember once at the front door, uh, somebody else's sewer pipe had backed up that was next door to us, but there was raw sewage just literally 20 feet away. So I had to get, even though it wasn't my property, I had to get that as resolved rather expediently to make sure that all our guests were having a good time. Yeah, this is huge. This is a great topic to be on. Uh, really dive into why it's so important to stay calm and how that impacts operation and decision-making in your career. Well, really. like anything in life, I I always told my teams that it's a lot like being a parent. If you become histronic, they're going to become histronic. But if you stay calm, they're going to stay calm. And giving out solutions versus just rat-a-tat-tat or, oh, my gosh, you don't want to perpetuate a problem. You want to solve the issue and challenge 
it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't even matter who created the problem. You just have to fix it. Um, I remember years ago, you know, back then people would come out to lunch at 1145 and then they all had in essence, 45 minutes to eat and then seven and a half minutes to get back to their, where they're at. But when you're watching a ticket come from the pizza oven and it just doesn't stop because order after order after order is coming in and a pizza oven only holds 12 pizzas at a time, you know, you got to figure that out. How are we going to work that? How are you going to send the food out? How are you going to balance even the, the meal so that your menu mix goes into different stations, whether it's saute, whether it's grill, whether it's the pizza oven, whether it's the pantry. But okay. staying calm has definitely served me the best in pretty much all the, even during that earthquake, just, hey, you put the fires out so that the gas doesn't blow. Hey, we need to make sure we've got all our people accounted for. Hey, let's bring all the money back to the safe. Mm. And what happens uh, or what was happening uh, prior to this realization that I've got to stay calm? Give me an example of when you lost your shit and you weren't calm and what the outcome of that was. Well, that was probably when I was really young um, and just starting off in this business. And I was a shift leader and I just kind of belted out a comment and said, hey, you know, in a louder voice. And you could just see the look on everybody's face. And I'm not I think what threw them is the fact that because they saw me as calm and all of a sudden it was like a volcano that just said, hey, rather tersely, it didn't really solve the solution. It didn't solve the challenge and it didn't provide a solution. That's when you start finding, you know, calmness, giving direction, clear and concise communication. Those are the things that are going to help pretty much everybody in any business and any forum. What was the comment? I'm curious now. You got my interest perked. I think <laughs> what I said, oh, how did I word it exactly? Call me dummy, but I'm not stupid. And I said it rather <laughs> tersely. Uh, so what... It was a common sense thing to figure out, but because I said it in a terse amount, that's what threw them. So what's happening in their minds at this point? When you say this, this thing, what, what's the chain of reaction? uh, Well, I never know what's in somebody's mind. You know, you really don't. That's why I perpetuate the fact that if you stay calm, then you get everyone else on that same level. Cause you don't know, are they taking it as a, oh my gosh, that person just reminded me of my father, my uncle, my grandfather, my mother, my grandmother. That reminded me of my old boss. I, I don't have those answers. Yeah, but I think what's important is regardless as to exactly what they're thinking, you're evoking an emotion. Uh, an emotion that's likely going to cloud their rational mind. Uh, they're well, not that, going to... That's exactly what happens. It always... Yeah. Anytime people become emotive and they don't, they become histronic, they're... They're not performing at their optimum. They're just kind of reacting. And what there's a point where you want people to react and not think in the normal part of business, but at the same token, you don't want that going in the bad part of business. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You, you don't want them to have to think about how to make the pizza and this and that. They want them to react, right? You don't yeah. want them to have to think about how they have to score the meat, grill it, et cetera. You want them just to flow. It becomes yeah. almost a mantra. Yeah, and I think that's the point to make is that as as you as the leader are going to set the tone, and if you if you start if you trigger the series of events with your emotional reaction, uh, it's only gonna you're only gonna be met with more emotional reactions, and the solution, uh, staying calm, and coming to the solution, isn't gonna happen anytime soon. Uh, so to have that maturity, to have that clarity, to to recognize that emotions have no place uh, unless it's 
empathy, <laughs> unless you're uh, empathizing with somebody in the heat of a moment, uh, you have to stay calm. You have to be solution oriented and uh, just move forward. Um, anything you want to add to that? Sure. Well, empathy and sympathy are two great things. And as you said, it, how how do you want to do that with people is to draw the best out of them and to show them the right path versus how not to react. It's the, the most important thing. Yeah. Um, perpetuating the goodwill with people. So um, we're they, they'll start 90s. doing that with everybody else <laughs> in their personal yeah. lives. Absolutely. So right now at this point, we're in uh, the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, what other serious events, serious uh, pivotal points in your career uh, happened between now and opening Sushi Ron in 2006? Well, I didn't open Sushi Ron. It was around, but I went to join them. Um, the okay, pivotal right. moment was my ex-wife was a classical archaeologist who studied the Etruscans. They predated the Romans. And uh, that's kind of how I ended up going to Hawaii because she had won a Fulbright and was off to Rome. And I needed okay. to stay focused. And I came back to California because I wanted to try and open a restaurant. But at that time I was putting money into my wife's edu- ex-wife's education. I think I'm the only person that had an amicable divorce, by the way, it was, uh, she was becoming published and famous in Italy and uh, wrote a lot of books uh, and for needed to stay focused on that. Um, I ended up working at a restaurant group called left bank brasseries. They were French brasseries, casual French food, much like casual Italian food. And then from there, I went to Sushi Ron because I used to live in Sausalito. And ironically, I would pass by it. And I went by and was talking to Yoshi Tomi, the owner, saying, hey, um, I know this restaurant sits for sale, but I'm not going to buy it. But there's a liquor license. Would you like to buy it? And he said, I got a better idea. I'd like you to come be my DO because I need some help to grow my business. All right. So uh, you had mentioned earlier that during this time, you were starting to develop this reputation for turning restaurants around. So what were you doing when you entered into a restaurant? Like what's the first thing you're doing to turn it around? I look and I listen. Okay. Awesome. And Eric here there, this is why this is a important part is a lot of times people go in and they're very blustery and say, well, things aren't right. And I used to provide viable solutions with measurable results. And that's how you really turn things around. Because if you look at things and listen, you start seeing what's the real issue. You're not going to see it all in one day. Sometimes it takes you a week to a month to see a lot of the different nuances, but there's cause and effect, right? And that could be as much as simple as, are we addressing the reservations right and correctly? Are we responding to people? Are we actually looking at them? One of my pet peeves is not just saying hello to people when they walk in the door, but to remember to open the door and say goodbye when they leave. It's a Why is that so important? Well, it's important because you're you're not physically touching them, but you're acknowledging that they were important enough to say goodbye to instead of great. I grabbed your money. You can leave. You've made them feel like a real person. Yeah. Thank you for coming to dine with us. Yeah. And another thing too, and this is something I've heard that, that opportunity of saying goodbye uh, when they're leaving is a really great opportunity to open up the dialogue, to find out if something wasn't good uh, before they get out. That's a great point because one of the things I used to tell my teams is don't go up and say, is everything okay? Because that's a predisposed comment of, well, maybe it's bad. I used to say, what do you think? And I'd get my teams to say, what do you think? And that's an open-ended question, right? Yeah. Quite frankly, what would happen is people, if they're having a problem, they'll tell you honestly yeah. their yeah. problem. I This is cold. This is hot. This is salty. This is not salty enough. I didn't get my food, whatever. So, Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just like Danny Meyer says, it, it opens up the dialogue for you to write the end of the story. Uh, but if you take that initiative to you know to engage before they leave, uh, th- th- they're going to start just. I mean, it's that's your chance to write the good ending before they get out there and. Uh, that's going. well said. Write a good <laughs> yeah. ending because the the whole. I also used to talk about if you're going to fold napkins, at least look into the dining room. When yeah. people have their backs to everybody, how do you see anything? The other thing I used to talk about is giraffing. And giraffing simply means, have you ever seen somebody when they sit down, they start stretching their neck up and they're looking around? Yeah. So, again, you go up to the table and say, hi, my name is Maso. How are you today? And they're either going to say, I'm having a problem, or they're going to say, hey, I'm just looking around. But at least you went to the table. But it's yeah. those subtle nuances that you know somebody's looking at. And to actually care to go over to, to make it right. Uh, which is the other big part of that is caring. Uh, but what else were you doing uh, to, to create this reputation of being the guy to go to, to turn things around? You said you look, you listen. What else were you doing uh, that you think really made you different from other people? Well, you mentor people too. Um, you know, I've had a lot of people that I've worked with that have gone on to become DOs, VPs of ops, founders, their own entrepreneurs, Um teaching people and taking the time to listen and talk to them. The other thing is finding out about the person. You talked about sympathy and empathy earlier. How many times did I walk by a dishwasher and ask how his day was going, whether it was in English or Spanish, and then you find out that something's wrong and they're going to have to go back home. I'd rather come back and work for us instead of having to invest a lot of money and to try and hire and train somebody. Yeah. Pretty simple just to listen to what people are saying and treating them like a human being. The other thing I used to do is I may know what the answer was, but if I let everybody talk about something, you would have, you would at least get good input and they'd feel like they were participatory versus non-participatory. Mm. The whole thing of getting good teams together is about the effective communication and the participation in it. And then giving them parameters because otherwise you're, what's the saying hurting cats. You don't want to be hurting cats. You want people yep. doing what they're supposed to be doing. And yet you wanted to empower them to have, the ability to make good choices. The other thing that I used to do is if they didn't do the right thing, I wouldn't admonish them. I would try to explain to them why they should have done something better because that way they're not going to be afraid to try and do something else. Wow. Uh, Yeah. All great things. Uh, Incentivizing uh, people to to do it better, uh, giving parameters, uh, letting people talk, mentoring, uh, all great uh, features, things that we've learned over the show, just to these practices to evolve as a professional. Uh, I'm curious, your, your, your time at uh, Sushi Ron, um, how was that experience working in a Michelin star restaurant different from maybe working at other restaurants and really dive into that time of your life there? Well, sure. It, it was interesting because it was a, technically it was an old fashioned sushi bar. And what we became was a pan Asian restaurant that had three different components to it. It was also a funny layout because it wasn't a brick and mortar that was enclosed in one building. You had a sushi bar that had 16 seats with only a few tables in the front window. Then in the back, you didn't have any sushi bar, but you had some tables. And then across the walkway, which was in a separate building, we had uh, another part of the restaurant, which we converted into wine and sake bar, where we would serve limited sushi and the rest of the Pan-Asian food. Uh, The thing to get everybody on to that was was trying to ensure everybody would sit together because – Sometimes you'll see them on a sushi bar or even a regular bar. People, there's an empty space. And what we always try to do is to maximize revenues is have all the seats filled, right? Mm -hmm. Second thing was getting a culture 
because Japanese culture is a very formal culture. It's a very polite culture. Sorry, I'm getting texts. Uh, and getting the non-Japanese to work and integrate together with the Japanese culture and finding that common ground. Um, you know, we converted the wine and sake bar where we actually put the sake up to visually see it. We, and we invested in a wine uh, cuvenade, put all the wines in. And we also had some Buddhist sayings about uh, sympathy, empathy, love, respect, um, Let's dive into that idea of combining cultures and finding common ground. Cause I think that is probably something that, uh, happens a lot in this industry with the mix of cultures, uh, especially with, you know, Hispanic culture moving into, uh, you know, certain, uh, like, I guess, uh, Western culture. I, well, even though it's, I don't know, there's still different cultures. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of culture clash between, uh, Hispanic, uh, and, uh, Caucasian or American, uh, kitchen so what would you advise uh well it it, here's the dilemma you're right there's always going to be clashes because you have a high stress environment and then if you're in a kitchen where there's high heat on a hot day that kind of exacerbates it and you can see that in cities and all kinds of places and the key thing on all types of conflict to resolve it is is okay who are the instigators let's try and divide and separate those what's the real issue oh, that's really not that important. Really? You're going to get mad because the guy took your water and drank it instead of him pouring his own? You know, you, A, shouldn't do that to B and vice versa. So those, it all depends on the situation. The other thing is I always make a point, no matter where I was at, I set my watch to 11.15 and 5.15 and my alarm would go off. And that was the point where we all got together. And instead of one person dictating to everybody for a shift meeting, I had interactive meetings where they all had to speak about something. And that could be as simple as talking about the menu addition. Menu addition to me is what people most commonly call a a special, but I never found anything special about it. I just called it a menu addition because we added it to the menu to that day. I also tried to bring our teams as a hospitality team and a culinary team. So they didn't feel like it was front of house and back of house, which makes it divisive. Culinary team and hospitality means they're more, confluent in uh, working together. And then by having them all talk about something, whether it's about the menu, the sake, the wine, the day, the reservations, they were all participating in it. And then they would all start to gain more confidence. Hmm. Uh, I mean, the big things, just the, the, the recap that I took out of this is, you know, first uh, isolate the, the person that's causing the people causing the trouble uh, and go to the source and figure it out. Uh, and I love the idea of just encouraging that dialogue and getting people to talk uh, and to open up, uh, create a culture of communication where people can speak up, people can be heard. Uh, and I don't know if that's intentionally what you're doing to kind of open up the dialogue. to get Absolutely. Talking. My mother uh, was a teacher and I learned yeah. a long time ago, <laughs> repetition and communication are yeah. keys to success. So a big part of that for you was just opening up the dialogue, getting people to feel comfortable and confident enough that they can be heard and that they can speak up. Is that safe to say? Yeah, that's absolutely safe to say. And it's really the very important because how often do you, if, if you don't give somebody a, a forum to speak up to and you have, you know, kind of, you, you always have to rein things in or keep them on point or have parameters, but I've never met anybody that if you actually asked them and again, whether it's in business or personal life, Hey, what's up? I've watched people that I see and they look like, I call them the 11s when they go up and down those furrows above your eyes. Yeah. They've got the 11s and they got real quiet. What happened? 
are they thinking about something that in the past it did a problem just occur that you don't know about and you came around the corner? Those are the things. And asking, that's why I always, one of my other things that I always talk to people, especially in interviews, as I would lead off is, what's your story? Because if you start saying, what was this like at such and such and who was a problem at your last job? Those are kind of, I follow Lou Adler, who's uh, on LinkedIn, but open-ended questions tend to provide you with clarity and good answers. There you go. Tori, what's your story? And I bet you, you can tell me a great story about yourself. If you want me to, but that's leading into the interview. That's the very first question. I love it. Filter in situational questions on inter- the interview process with people to elicit things that have happened. And then the other part is if they, you know, a resume is just a resume, but if you look at it and say, okay, well, I see that you did this. How did you get to that point? Much like you're asking me these questions. That's the same situational question that we would do in the interview process. And I'd have my HR director and manager sit in. Um, I'll never forget one time I had a general manager call me up and say, Hey, I want to hire this lady. She's really nice. She just moved here from Atlanta, but she's never been in the restaurant business before. I said, okay, what's the position? And she said, well, she's going to be a host for us. I said, okay, what did she used to do? She said, she's a ballet dancer for the Atlanta ballet. And I said, hire. Jennifer said, why? You haven't even met her. I said, well, think about it, Jennifer. Since five years old, that lady's been so disciplined and had to do more rehearsals. I guarantee you she's going to be working out for us. And to this day, she's now just under the chef owner of a restaurant in San Francisco. Wow. That's impressive. Uh, And you just that that correlation of the discipline is what all you needed to, to kind of be able to predict that. Well, sure. You, you look at things of, did somebody participate in a sports team? They're probably going to be part of it. I hired a guy one time who had never been in the restaurant business uh, in Hawaii. He was an ex Navy seal. And I remember the owner saying, looking at the piece of paper saying, but he's never been in the restaurant business. And I said, he graduated from such and such university and he's a Navy SEAL. Yeah. I guarantee you he's going to be, whether we have him for nine months or two years, he'll be able to do whatever we can do. And sure enough, he did that. And it's not military and sports and dance. There's a lot of different, if you take the time to listen to what's being said in those interviews, you find out, do they have that certain something? I always hired for attitude, really. You know, you can see it all the time. And I also talk about smiles. How many times do you see somebody in an interview and they don't smile? I say a smile costs nothing but means a lot. And it's free. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so powerful. And uh, I'm, I'm curious. So you earned the Michelin star. Uh, obviously, it takes a team to accomplish a feat. Yeah, like it that. was not me. It was the we us. That's for sure. Yeah. But what was your influence? If, if you had to influence in, uh, you know, if you had anything to do with that star, what what impact, what influence do you think? you? Well, I, I would say it was calmness in the communication and I don't care what business restaurant you're in. There's always going to be highs and lows and different things that happen. It could be something as simple as the water heater goes out to somebody trips and you're short staffed, but you want to make things seamless. And I'm not really telling you anything you probably haven't heard from a lot of great restaurant tours. Cause you mentioned Danny Meyer and you know, the parallel lives of everybody in the restaurants are, you always have that same common denominator, preach communication, preach patience, Preach mentorship. Those are the things that get everybody on the same page. Inclusion, empowerment, it all it all sums it up. I mean, that's really what it gets down to. And then yeah. by having that inclusion of cultures, you have less strife, really. So uh, we're kind of uh, – man, time's flying. I can't believe it's almost been over 
40 minutes now, but you continue after Sushi Ron to uh, really just use your time to help other people turn their, their that's when I had the consulting business culinary keystone. Um, and I did that and I, I signed a lot of NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. So I can't tell you who I talked to on some of the high profile people, but you learned certain things there. And that's the other amazing thing. They may be high profile, but they have works too. They have their challenges. And sometimes they're so into the forest, they can't see what those things are that need to be resolved. Yeah. So in your Back opinion, sorry, groceries, and that's when I was back to being a corporate officer. Okay. So in your opinion, um, in this time, uh, helping these companies turn things around and really sharing what you've learned over the years, if you could narrow it down to like three things, uh, three just things you know to be true about what it takes to be successful, uh, things that you didn't necessarily know when you first got started, but learned over the years through just trial and error and doing the work, what do you, what have you learned? Like, what are the biggest lessons you've learned that you can impart on my audience uh, today, always listen and observe. Always be willing to give of yourself. Always be willing to ask questions to find solutions. What's the impact of always being willing to give of yourself first? Well, I told you I've given a lot of people parts of myself and they listened. And that's a fascinating thing because sometimes people don't listen and you figure that out pretty quickly. The ones that listen are the ones that become vice president of such and such company and they become director of operations or they become head of this or head of that. Because And then one of the things I tell them all the time is, by the way, don't forget to pass that down to the next generation. Because there's always going to be people coming around. You have to be nimble and evolve on a consistent basis because – all, business, all things in life, you want consistency, but at the same token, there's constant change. And if you're not evolving and being nimble with it, you're not going to get to that next level. So exactly what is it that you're giving of yourself to these people? Oh, I've given them time. I've given them effort. I've given them the, I, I would, I'd like to say that I try to impart the patience and the compassion because by listening to people and showing them ways to do things helps them become better people. You know, anybody can teach a person to go from point A to point B, but by having an attitude of calmness and compassion, that tends to get people going forward. I love it. And one thing that you mentioned that I don't think is mentioned enough and something that frankly, I think we as society have lost uh, focus on and lost just all like complete, just, awareness of is encouraging the next generation that you taught to teach the next generation after them. Uh, and I think it's those restaurant groups that really recognize that, that the Danny Myers, the best restaurant groups, the let us entertain yous that really get that. Uh, it's about continuing the, the trend of mentoring for the next generation that, that are able to grow laterally like they do because it's that constant renewal of lessons to be learned, that culture of learning of giving on to the next generation. Do you want to reflect on what I shared? Oh, that's absolutely true. The, the culture of learning in that uh, compassion to keep mentoring people forward. I don't know why people don't, I, I, you know, it's so easy. They all say the millennials and they all talk about tech, but the reality is, these are things that that's the evolution of life. And you still have to work through things, even if something breaks down and by talking to people and mentoring people that helps perpetuate what we're really about as human beings, because there's always going to be a table that you got to eat at. 
The other mm. is to talk to people about, even if you don't like the restaurant business and this is just a vehicle to get to the next level of something, I guarantee you're going to glean how to conduct a business lunch, a business dinner, just by sheer osmosis of being around these people. Yeah. You'll see the ins and outs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything else that we haven't touched on up to this point that you want to share with us? This is a business that can change your life. Um, you know, I know a lot has been said about brick and mortar restaurants are going to are falling apart and that everybody's going to work for the large tech companies in those little bubbles of indoor cafes and stuff. But the reality is people are always going to have to eat and people are always going to have to learn. I, I'm about the civility of working with each other and dining and having conversations. Even if you're texting, you're still having a conversation. And the reality is there's also a point of, hey, I'm going to have to look up at some point and acknowledge that other person. I haven't met you except for today, right? And, you know, you learn right off the bat. You smiled. You asked great questions. You participated. You're passionate about what you do. I would hire you, Eric Cacciatore, in a heartbeat, or I would try (laughs) to put you in a place that you could hire people. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that very kind compliment. Uh, I'm curious, though. So you said something that really I want to dive into deeper. Like you can change lives with this industry. So what do you, what exactly did you mean by that? How does this industry change lives? Well, it changes lives because, again, what you do is you t- – I guess one of the things is I used to make sure we took kids around into the restaurant so they could see that food actually didn't come out of a – a box or a zipper. It, you could actually touch and feel the berries. You could peel a banana. You could actually see the fish. You know, not all the kids liked it. Some of them went, ooh, and at the same token, but they actually, it was tangible. Mm. Importantly, changing lives is showing them that, hey, you want to be a doctor? Great. These are things that you're going to learn that you're going to help you go onward. Uh, you're going to be a furniture designer. I mean, I've had a lot of people that have gone on to be doctors, furniture designers, gone into IT. Uh, they've used a lot of the life lessons that we find in this business. Yeah. And I, I was hoping, uh, and you kind of touched on it, just the impact of a lot of the people that you're you're going to hire are going to be young professionals, many times first job. Um, yeah. And you really get to impact and influence these the future, like the next generation of professionals, of mentors. And I don't think there's an industry that has as much of an impact, maybe other than educational, uh, that you have such an impact on young people and can really influence what they become. You're absolutely right. And that's why I would, especially when I wasn't on the floor and I was a corporate officer, I made a point of not staying in the ivory tower and I'd go to the different properties and I would stop and chat with people And I would acknowledge right off the bat, depending on what they were saying to me, I could tell them right off the bat, look, I understand that you're not doing this for the rest of your life and you're going to go into tech or I understand you're going into this venue. Great. These are the things that we're going to learn and I wish you well. And by the way, I hope you'll always stay in touch. And I can tell you one of the dumbest things that I still do that drives people. I don't know if it makes them happy or nice. I believe it makes them happy. Pretty much as many employees that I've had, the that have constantly stayed in touch with me, I always send them a happy birthday, whether it's a text or an email. Yeah. People nice. I haven't worked with for 10 years. What's the power of just me- remembering? What- well, I can tell you that three days ago, a woman named Simona said, <laughs> I got the text, OMG, you always remember my birthday. You just brighten my day. 
Awesome. You know, the, the world can be either strifeful or not. I tend to be a half glass full person and I'm going to perpetuate that because that's a good thing. And have you ever seen anybody really get mad because somebody remembered their birthday? No. <laughs> so what month were you born in, Eric? August. A Leo? Yes, sir. Are you the 4th of August? I am the 16th of August. You are the day after Ferragosto. Ferragosto is a famous holiday in Italy on the 15th. So you are the 16th of August. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, j- just the – well, it seems like you're good with numbers and just dates in general and memorizing, but – I mean, one thing that just came out of your mouth too that I need to put light on is uh, you're either like an adder or a subtractor. You didn't use those words, but it's just that continual spreading of positivity and optimism and, and good. And if you're somebody who's just compl- continually adding to the, 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 the positivity of other people, the, 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 the goodness of everyone else's day, like that comes back around. And especially in, in the restaurant environment, the culture – I've had a good life. I mean, I've been able to live all yeah. over. The, I've lived in Rome. I've lived in Paris. I've been to Germany, Spain, Barcelona. I've lived in Hawaii. I've lived in Carmel. I mean, I've had a great life. I have no complaints about it. Has there been tragedies that I've seen up close and personal? Yep. But it is the cycle of life. Mm. But, you know, again, you get back to what are you going to do with it? Are you going to put yourself, your head in the sand? Or are you going to participate and try and make it better? And I'm more mm. about let's try to make it better. Awesome. And uh, looking at the time, I can't believe how fast time is going. Uh, we're going to do a speed round, but first I've got to get um, a failure. Uh, we can learn a ton from the, the lessons, the, the successes of others, but tell me about a time you fell hard on your ass, Tommaso. Uh, and really uh, tell us what you learned from that experience and that failure. Well, the hardest thing was trusting somebody that I thought I knew well, and they were pilfering and you know you whether when you have to terminate somebody whether it's right or wrong you still affect their lives and um, you know when you trust somebody and you believed in them and then they've disappointed you and that's another word that I have used a lot in my mentoring days because as a young child I think everybody when they got that look from their mother or their father or their grandparents or their teacher and that that said I'm really disappointed in you. It was powerful enough to make them think about what they did. Yeah. Um, failure wise. Yeah. I'd say my biggest failure was the fact, I, you know, I can't even call it a failure. Is it a failure that I've gotten my ex-wife a PhD and I didn't get to open my own restaurant? Was it a failure that I tried to do some restaurant openings and the economy didn't work out the way I wanted it to? Is it a failure that I have a, restaurant group that we thought we were going to get to open and the leases are so cost prohibitive. I I don't, I can't call it a failure. I mean, yeah, I I don't look at things as that black and white. I look at things as, okay, what's the solution? And maybe the timing's not right. Mm. I mean, we're even hardwired in our minds for certain things. Uh, Whether you burn your hand, how many times do you burn it? You burn it, but you don't, the synapsis doesn't go off until five seconds later or Two minutes later. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the trick, though, is to have that uh, mentality of is it a failure if there's a lesson to be taken from this? If 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 we're resilient and we're bouncing back and staying buoyant and saying, okay, that is going to go into the the data pool of things to do or not to do, and if that that that's just newfound information, and what are you going to do with that information going forward to have a better shot or to yeah. do it differently? And I think that's the lesson to take away. That is the lesson. 
Beautiful. I love it. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back for a speed round. Whether you're just getting started in the restaurant business or if you're a seasoned veteran, there's always something new to learn. That never ends. (laughs) But what hasn't changed is the time you get to learn. Tipsy has taken everything you need to know and put it in one easy-to-access location. With Tipsy, you can learn what you want, when you want, by accessing an incredible library of video courses on topics like food and beverage, service, marketing, and business operations. It's basically a one-stop shop for everything you need to run a successful restaurant. You can also use Tipsy as a staff training tool. Through the management platform, you can select the courses that matter to you and schedule them out to your employees in a few simple clicks. Individual memberships are only $9 a month, and as a restaurant's unstoppable listener, you receive an extra 50% off your first month. So what are you waiting for? For $4.50, you can have access to this incredible resource right now. Just find the Tipsy banner in the show notes. After studying over 300 successful restaurant professionals, I've discovered that to be successful in the restaurant industry, you need skills that go far beyond knowing how to cook. All of our guest mentors are damn near experts on business operations, systems, and culture. That is not a coincidence. That is what it takes to be successful. This is exactly why I tell everyone I know who wants to open a restaurant or is in the restaurant business to get a membership to restaurantowner.com. For only $29 a month, you have access to over 300 templates, including business plans, checklists, forms, manuals, and procedures. In addition, you have countless resources at your fingertips. To join a community that has helped over 40,000 restaurant owners make better lives for themselves, head over to restaurantowner.com slash unstoppable and because you are restaurants unstoppable listeners you will get the first 10 days for only one dollar again that's restaurantsowner.com slash unstoppable all right we're back and the first question i have for you tomaso is what is your it factor a habit a trait or characteristic or multiple that you think contributes to your success? Always listen, always observe. Beautiful. And what is your biggest weakness? Maybe I listen too long and maybe I observe too long. How does that dive into that? How does that hurt you? Sometimes you need to make decisions sooner rather than later. Um, I've been the type of person that uh, I always tell everybody, let's sleep on it at least one night. Um, sometimes I've lost employees because they wanted an answer immediately. But then I say, maybe that's not a bad thing if they needed an answer immediately because it's a marathon race. It's not a sprint. What's the biggest thing that holds you back from making that decision? Not having all the facts. Um, I learned a long time ago from a bunch of policemen that there's three personalities. There's the work personality, the family personality, and that independent personality that's only living in that person's head that only that person knows about. So, Mm. What if what made that person do something that was not right? So you just want to find all the information you possibly can before making the decision that could really well, impact someone. Especially life. when you're dealing with millions and millions of yeah. dollars, you better be able to make some yeah. good decisions. Absolutely. So what is one piece of advice you have for leading others? Don't forget to mentor. Don't forget to care. Don't forget to listen. 
don't forget to remember their birthday. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to find out your birthday before we, uh, before we wrap up so I can add you on my calendar. So I, I already got you, 816. <laughs> nice. All right. What is uh, one question or thing you're looking for when you're looking to expand your team? I, I have two questions I ask, and it's one question in the sense of who had the most influence in your life, and then I ask them why. And I ask them that is it's an open-ended question, and you'd be amazed. And the reason I ask why is because anybody could just say, oh, it was my mom. Well, why? It was a teacher. Well, why? It was my grandfather. Well, why? Did they give them a life lesson? Did they teach them something? Oh, man. I, don't have I sometimes to... ask, are you more analytical or intuitive? Because there really is no incorrect answer. Most people are analytical. Some are intuitive. And if they say they're analytical with a hint of intuitiveness, that's not necessarily a wrong answer. I got to ask you a question, I though. Ask why? <laughs> Who is your biggest influence in your life? I've had a lot of great influencers in my life. So I guess the, the narrower question is, in what realm? In what realm? Is in a restaurant realm? Is in a personal realm? The most, the, the biggest impact, the, the name that jumps out to you first. Well, the honest answer most people will tell you from a psychological standpoint is their mother because they carry you in their womb. And my mother was yeah. a teacher and she taught me a lot of things. From the restaurant side, I could give you a lot of different names. But the one that I remember the most is a guy named John Kunin uh, that worked with me at Moss. Uh, specifically because he was really one of the, while I worked for a lot of great people, he was the one that also perpetuated, hey, everybody's a human being. Hey, we have to still serve all these people. Hey, I can't believe everybody's not, everybody's, there's not one person in the dining room right now because you guys are all yapping back here. You know, taking care of the other person, putting that hand out, taking that moment to teach and show people things. Beautiful. And um, what is one book that it's a must read uh, that make us either a better person or a better restaurant operator or owner. Oh, well, you know, if you talk restaurants, you can talk about Danny Myers. If you want to talk about philosophy, I would talk about Aristus by an author named John Fowles, F O W L E S. And it's, he wrote the French Lieutenant's woman, but the book, the word Aristus is literally means the best in Greek, but his premise was making the best of a situation. And I probably found that to be a very, uh, impact part of my restaurant world because there's always something that's challenging whether it's in restaurants coffee you, you just learn so much by making the best of that situation really dive into that though uh the, the message and what you learned uh dive into making the best of a situation well i mean it could be something as simple as there's a car wreck and all the reservations relate to there's a power outage are you going to you know, I, I once had a power outage when three of my restaurants called up and said, okay, we want to close. I went, okay, wait a second. What time is it? And they said, it's 11 o'clock in the afternoon. I said, is the sun out? And they went, yeah. I said, okay, so why don't we do this? Why don't we serve if you can, and you have to be, have common sense, right? If it's an enclosed kitchen in the bowels of a hotel, you're probably not going to get away from this or get away with it. But if you're in a showcase kitchen, and there's light, yeah, you could probably do cold salads and you can probably still serve drinks and leave the till open to create revenue to find out when's the power going to come back on. Mm. That's making the best of a given situation. What's the impact of that? Well, if you closed right away, you would lose money, right? Completely. You would lose yep. revenue for the day. What if the power came back on in 20 minutes to an hour? I don't think 20 minutes to an hour is that tough to wait out to see if there's a dilemma. If it was 10 o'clock at night, 
I wouldn't even thought about saying, yeah, close it down. Who's going to work at 10 o'clock at night? Uh, we don't know when it's coming back. It's dangerous. All right. And I got to look this up real quick. Uh, is that on Audible? Because I've not heard of it, but I'm really interested. I want to listen to this book. Um, how do you spell it? What's that? The title of the book? Aristos. A-R-I-S-T-O-S. A-R-I-S-T-O-S. Aristos. John Fowles. F-O-W-L-E-S. John Fowles. Oh, man, I'm not seeing it. Unfortunately, it's not on audio, but I'm going to have to get the hard copy of that book because it sounds really interesting. Uh, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 342. I'll have the link in the show notes. And the next question I have for you is what is one technology? Uh, how are you leveraging a technology in uh, Mr. Espresso today to be more effective with your communication, your efficiencies, your profitabilities, anything. How, how are you leveraging technology? Yeah, well, we have a CRM that obviously helps. We also have an online reporting that's telling us about restaurants and hotel openings uh, because you always try to get in there sooner rather than later. Uh, clearly, what <laughs> I can't really tell you that we're dealing with a large, you know, everybody thinks you only deal with restaurants and hotels, but we actually are dealing with a group in Asia that wants to bring in our coffee. We're also dealing with a large um, a retail operation that wants to put our coffees in their shelves uh, because of our story. You know, part of our branding is Carlo DeRuco in 1957 on a Vespa driving down. So you have that modern retro look, yeah. handsome guy on a Vespa in Salerno who doesn't think that they're having Italian coffee then at Samore, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned CRM, you mentioned a reservation to uh, so people can learn about openings. Uh, what platforms specifically are you using? So we can link back to them in the show notes. Uh, ProsperWorks is the CRM that we're currently working with. Restaurant Activity Report is the second uh, platform that we're using. So that was ProsperWorks, and what was the second one? It's called Restaurant Activity Report. Restaurant Activity Report. And why did you go with these platforms? Uh, I'm always trying to check new things <laughs> out and how fruitful are they? I mean, the the one of the hardest things is trying to keep schedules together and calendars and yeah. – uh, I like to make sure that at least we're populating things with names and numbers and how often we've chatted with them. Uh, are they happy? Aren't they happy? What's going on? Do you do site visits? Do you make a point of, I call it the circle. Uh, one of the sayings I used to say in restaurants is you're like a shark. If you stop moving, you die. So you better keep on checking things out. Are our clients happy? Where are we going? Do they need more things? Um, is it time for some preventive maintenance? I mean, there's a litany of things I could go through. Yeah, and how have these my head, but that's where I can use those platforms to put those down for follow up notes, taglines, et cetera, et cetera. Birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> See, you heard what was being said. Yeah, uh, beautiful. Awesome. So I'll have those in the show notes as well. Again, this is episode 342. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 342 to find the links. And um, the next and last question I have for you is if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of business advice, maybe go back to 1989 when you're really committed to this industry and you're starting to live more intentional, uh, what would that piece of advice be? Good question. It's a good question because 
as much as I feel like I'm a renaissance guy that's learned a lot about this business, I probably should have done more on being ahead of the curve on technology. Cause if you remember, that's kind of when technology was going Yeah, and there was a show that I think it was Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric that said, what is the internet? And I didn't have that oomph to say, wow, I jump on that sooner rather than later. Mm. And what do you think the next internet is as far as the thing that you would want to jump on now? That's I couldn't answer that. I wish I could. Cause if I did, <laughs> you'd be on it. I'd be on it already. Exactly. I, I don't. Here's an interesting thing. If you look in history, there's usually been the five to ten years preceding or post a turn of a century. There's been these great manifestations of change, and then you don't have them for a while. We are now in the year 2017, and nothing's slowing down. It's changing more rapidly, and that's kind of unheard of in history. Yeah. So you know, I, I, that's why I'm fascinated about why we need to keep learning things and keep going forward. There's still going to be people on in the world, but where are those tools and how much better are they? I, you know, podcast, I, I actually like and listen to a fair amount. Um, I, there's a guy named Justin Levy with Citrix and he does a thing on Facebook marketing. He actually wrote the book or it was a co-author on the book, but those are, yeah, those are things to know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I, I personally think the way the future as far as marketing goes and technology goes is more impactful. Uh, the more one on one, if you're looking, the, the platforms are holding more attraction now are the ones that are more isolated social groups uh, where you don't have thousands of followers, but you have you control the amount of people that you interact with. And it's much yeah. more online and more engaging. Uh, that's where I think it's going uh, is that, that more uh, one-on-one impactful. There's still going to be social platforms, but they're not going to be open to the masses. They're going to be more closed and personal uh, is what I think's you know, agree. I will take that to note. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so anything I could have asked you Tommaso that would have added more value to this conversation. You were pretty thorough, Eric. More, one of the most thorough people I've ever met in my life. Well, thank you very much. It's extremely flattering. I've got to get better at taking compliments. It's something I'm still working on, but I do appreciate it. Uh, and, I mean, you've been awesome. I, I wrap up every episode uh, by r- calling somebody out. So who is somebody you admire? Uh, Rafe Gable called you out. Now I need you to call somebody else out. Who do you respect? Who do you admire? Who would be a great guest mentor on the show? Um, I'd say John Cunin, C-U-N-I-N. C-U-N-I-N. Look out, John. I'm coming after you. I'd love to connect. I'd love to get your story. And uh, let the folks at home know, uh, how can we connect with you? If we want to pick up the conversation, if we want to uh, ask some questions, maybe we want to come join uh, a team that you're on uh, or just get mentored. Or like, What's the best way to connect? Culinary Keystone at Yahoo.com culinary keystone at yahoo.com one more time this is episode 342 head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 342 links to the product services the books recommended and how to connect with Tommaso will be right there uh Tommaso uh, again uh thank you so much for taking the time to join me uh to be an example of what greatness looks like to be an example of what caring looks like uh there is no questioning you are unstoppable <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, the law of perpetual motion. 
the law of per- perpetual motion. What, dive into that. What are we talking about real quick? We're just That's unstoppable. Oh, all right. There we go. I love it. All right. Until next time, peace out, guys, and cheers. Cheers. Tommaso Bunker, awesome episode. Uh, great advice in today's conversation. And I thought it was just really interesting to hear how things uh, started to change in his life as he started to uh, live more intentionally. Uh, he started developing that reputation for himself to be the guy to go to to turn things around. And, I, you know, that all just comes from living intentionally, learning, and taking initiative. And, uh, you know, always finding a solution. There's always a solution, always looking for the solution and figuring it out. Uh, we can learn a lot from Tommaso in that regard. And I love the emphasis he put on mentoring people uh, and listening to people and caring for people and being there for people. But even more than that, are you teaching the people you're mentoring to also mentor? If you're an owner, are you teaching your general managers to mentor the managers? Are, you, are the managers teaching the, uh, you know, are the general managers teaching the managers to mentor the, the line staff, the, the, you know, the, the high school dishwashers, busboys? I mean, are you creating a culture of continual trickle down mentoring, sharing, you know, cultures, values? in really making an impact in your communities. That's what the great restaurants do. They, they live their values and those values echo day in and day out. And they're not just going through the motions. They're, they're living it. Uh, and I, I felt that with Tommaso. Uh, beautiful stuff today. Uh, like always, guys, you can connect with me. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com. Find me, Eric Cacciatore, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, please shoot me an email, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. If you can think of anyone who's crushing it in your community who would make a great guest mentor, uh, somebody we can learn from together, I would, I would love to get their story and gather their advice, uh, have them as a guest on the show. And um, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much. Thanks so much for sticking around this long until next time peace out